This year's Nobel Peace Prize winners are human rights activists and organizations from Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. The Peace Prize laureates represent civil society in their home countries. The three newest Nobel laureates coming up. It's Friday, October 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Vice President Kamala Harris has held many meetings on abortion rights since Roe v. Wade was overturned. NPR sat in on recent sessions to find out more about what she's hearing. The first cobalt mine in America in decades opens today in Idaho. The metal used in electric vehicle batteries is in big demand. And starting next fall, all cell phones manufactured in or for the EU will be required to use a universal USB-C connector to charge. This will be beneficial to consumers, to businesses, and also to our environment. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. stocks end the day sharply lower. The Dow tumbled further in the final hour of trading to more than 700 points down before recovering slightly. The S&P is down roughly 3 percent. The Nasdaq closer to 4 percent. Factoring in the accelerated sell-off, jobs and the Fed, the government reports U.S. employers added fewer than expected 263,000 jobs to payrolls in September. The cooling demand for workers actually welcome news for the Fed, which is trying to curb inflation. NPR Scott Horsley reports the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent. He explains why. We saw a big influx of workers in August when nearly 800,000 people joined or rejoined the workforce. But today's report shows, unfortunately, that trend did not continue in September. In fact, 57,000 people dropped out of the workforce last month. That's why the unemployment rate fell to 3.5 percent, matching a half-century low. NPR Scott Horsley. The White House says there is no imminent nuclear threat from Russia. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports this comes after President Biden used the word Armageddon last night when he talked about Russian President Vladimir Putin's threats. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre told reporters there won't be any strategy shift from the U.S. when it comes to Russia's nuclear arms. We have not seen any reason uh, to adjust our own strategic nuclear posture, nor do we have indication that Russia is preparing to imminently use nuclear weapons. The White House says Biden was reiterating what intelligence officials have been saying, that they take Putin's threats seriously. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Officials in Ukraine say their troops continue to reclaim territory from Russian forces in the south of the country. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukraine has taken back more than 200 square miles over the last week, though, as NPR's Jason Bobian tells us. It's getting tougher. Ukrainian soldiers in the Kherson region continue to slowly advance south along the west bank of the Dnipro River. The counteroffensive, which at first was gobbling up large swaths of territory, is now facing stiffer Russian resistance. Fighters on the front lines say they're facing dug-in enemy positions and that Russian forces are hitting back with artillery to slow the Ukrainian advance. Elsewhere over the last 24 hours, Russian missiles and drones struck multiple cities across the country. Local officials say the city of Nikopol was pounded overnight by shelling. Further east, additional rockets rained down on Zaporizhia, even as search and rescue efforts continue in the rubble of an apartment building hit on Thursday. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Krivary, Ukraine. Reuters reports the State Department says the U.S. and allies are coordinating their response to Iran's deadly crackdown on protesters and what spokesman Vedant Patel calls state-sponsored violence against women. Iran's been confronted with weeks of protests over the death of a Kurdish-Iranian woman who was arrested for allegedly wearing her hijab improperly. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission has voted this afternoon to officially target a date in late January for a launch for in-person sports betting. That means people in the state would be able to gamble on the next Super Bowl. The commission has also identified early March as a target start date for mobile and app-based wagering. Commissioner Eileen O'Brien says it's still difficult to hone in on specific launch dates, especially for mobile betting, because no one knows how many vendors will apply to the program. Until we know exactly how many we get, there's, there's a huge range. One commissioner abstained from the otherwise unanimous vote. Nikisha Skinner says she's concerned the timelines are too aggressive and won't allow regulators to do thorough work. Brake lights abound on this busy travel day for the holiday weekend. 128 northbound has backups all the way from Needham to Linfield. It may take you an hour, 20 minutes to make that trip. Expect an hour-long trip on the turnpike westbound between Upton and Sturbridge. And 495 northbound is a one-hour, 20-minute trip from Bolton to Haverhill. Data from first responders indicate Boston avoided a bike and pedestrian safety crisis during the month-long Orange Line shutdown this summer. Before the closure, some advocates warned heavy traffic and bulky shuttle buses could make intersections especially dangerous. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Boston Emergency Medical Services says the number of pedestrian incidents it responded to actually stayed flat during the shutdown compared to the same time frame last year, and bicycle incidents even declined a bit. Stacey Thompson of advocacy group Livable Streets Alliance credits the city's work to divert traffic and increase signage. What I think is most remarkable is that the city didn't just do this as a reaction to the orange line. They also intentionally took the time to learn from this experience and then made some of those changes permanent. Thompson also credits state transportation officials, especially for prioritizing cyclists on state roads. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Chelsea has a new police uh, police chief, that is. Longtime Captain Keith Houghton will now lead the city's police department after swearing in this morning. Former Chief Brian Kyes is leaving to become U.S. Marshal for Massachusetts. In the forecast, just too nice out there today and more lovely weather's ahead for the weekend. Should have a cloudy night tonight, dropping to the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, sunshine on the chilly side, about 58 for a high. Sunday, sunshine again in the low 60s. And then Monday, the holiday, mainly sunny. Highs about 64. 75 degrees now in the Boston area. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DuckDuckGo, a privacy company committed to making privacy online simple. Used by tens of millions, they offer private search and tracker blocking with one download. DuckDuckGo, privacy simplified. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was announced today with three winners, all human rights activists and organizations. They're from Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Here is Barrett Rice Anderson, chairperson of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, announcing the award. The three nations they represent are neighbors, and their civil societies have a joint understanding of the values that they want to promote. Well, joining us now to talk about the winners are NPR's Yulian Haida in Kyiv and NPR's Charles Mains in Moscow. Hey to both of you. Hi there. Hi there. 
So, Charles, I want to start with you because Russia again, right? Like last year, the co-winner of this award was the editor of an independent Russian newspaper. This year, the Russian human rights group Memorial is the winner or one of the winners. Can you talk about this group? Yeah, sure. You know, Memorial emerged uh, in the late Soviet era as part of a public effort, really, to document Stalinist era crimes. This is when millions of Soviet citizens were sent to the prisons, uh, to the gulag. Uh, yet it was the organization's work documenting human rights abuses in the new Russia that really put Memorial increasingly at odds with Vladimir Putin's Kremlin. In, in 2021, just last year, the organization was liquidated for allegedly violating the government's foreign agents law. Hmm. Uh, a parallel case found its human rights wing guilty of promoting terrorism. Uh, Memorial insists both trials were politically motivated and has continued its work uh, despite a crackdown at home that's intensified amid the conflict in Ukraine. And that's why this award matters, says Memorial member Svetlana Ganushkina, who was cited by the Nobel Committee today as an early supporter of Memorial's work. So here Ganushkina calls the award a show of solidarity and an acknowledgement that not all Russians are bad and that there are those, in fact, Russians who are against the war in Ukraine. Hmm. And Yulian, you're in Kyiv, where another winner, the Center for Civil Liberties, is from. What do we know about that group? Well, the group was founded in 2007, and that was a time when Ukraine's government was rife with abuse and corruption. Just a couple of years prior to that, Ukraine had a really big protest movement, and some people wanted to move their activism from the streets into offices to kind of formalize it. Mm. The Center for Civil Liberties was a tangible way that lawyers and human rights activists could work year-round. And that came really in handy when Ukraine got its next big protest movement just a few years later. Their work has taken a really big turn, though, since Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Instead of holding their own government accountable, they're now turning their attention to Russia. I talked to Yuri Bilous, a human rights attorney in Kyiv, who's helped the center document Russian war crimes. He says here that documenting war crimes is a vital preventative measure to further war. It's also a well-deserved, albeit safe, peace prize choice. And what's been the larger reaction in Kyiv to this award? Surprisingly controversial. It's the first time that a Ukrainian person or group has ever won a peace prize. Yeah. And so there's a great deal of pride in that fact. Yeah. But there's also a lot of criticism from the president's office on down to social media that say that the Nobel Committee's joint peace prize unfairly lumps together Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia and adopts a lot of the same discourse about neighbors and common struggles that Vladimir Putin also has used to justify ah, this war. Yes. Yeah. Mikhailo Podolyak, a top advisor to Ukraine's president, said that Russian or Belarusian activists don't deserve a peace prize because they weren't able to mount an effective anti-war movement in their own countries. Of course, that's because domestic repression at home doesn't really allow for that. And in fact, a lot of Belarusian activists have sought refuge in Ukraine. Well, speaking of Belarus, Charles, can you talk about the Nobel Peace Prize winner from there? Because he's the sole individual recipient this year, right? Yeah, that's right. This is Ares Balyatsky. He emerged a key figure in the pro-democracy movement in Belarus starting in the 1980s. Uh, he eventually founded Vyasnya. This is, uh, the word means spring in Belarusian. It's an organization that documents human rights abuses and monitors elections. Now, there have been many of the former and too few of the latter in Belarus under strongman Alexander Lukashenko's rule. He's been in power since 1994. Uh, and yet in interviews, Bolyatsky never seems to lose hope, as you can hear. 
So here Belyatsky says in an interview with Deutsche Welle's Russian service uh, that he's convinced democracy and human rights will ultimately prevail in Belarus, arguing otherwise he wouldn't have fought for it all those years. Now, Belyatsky has been in and out of prison for his activities. In fact, he's currently in jail uh, on what are widely believed to be trumped-up charges of tax evasion. So when I reached out to Belyatsky's colleagues at Vesna, they weren't even sure if he knew he'd actually won the Nobel Prize yet. Uh, either way, his colleague, Vesna's Natalia Sansukevich, says it's well-deserved and overdue. As I remember, five times a nominee, and finally he's a winner, and... Uh, my first thought was, like, finally. <laughs> so, Charles, you know, as we noted earlier, the award to the Russian organization is, like, the second year in a row that we have seen a Nobel Peace Prize given to a perceived Kremlin critic. And it just so happens that this is President Vladimir Putin's 70th birthday today, right? How much of a coincidence do you think that is? Well, certainly the early reaction from, let's call it official Moscow, has been subdued. You know, lawmakers here say are saying that the Nobel Committee has discredited itself by injecting politics into the decision. Uh, but the Nobel Committee's chair was asked directly, was this a message for Putin on his birthday, no less? And she argued the prize fundamentally wasn't about him. And we always give a prize for something and to somebody and not against anyone. Okay, well, finally, a question for both of you. What does it say that the Nobel Peace Prize went in a way to this whole region instead of to just one person or one organization? What do you think? Well, you know, to, to me, it tells us that the committee sees what's happening in these countries as critical to the future of Europe, if not the world. And the recipients come from countries that are all in their own way uh, grappling with the legacy of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, reflected most painfully uh, in the conflict in Ukraine, but also in these increasingly autocratic and authoritarian governments in Russia and Belarus. Uh, but make no mistake, you know, this is the second year in a row where oppression of speech and thought uh, and, and truth in Vladimir Putin's Russia is in the Nobel spotlight. And of course, Belarus has similar problems under Alexander Lukashenko. Yeah, but in some ways, Ukraine sees itself as having graduated from some of those repressions and fear that consume societies in Russia and Belarus. Since the 2014 revolution, Ukrainian civil society has really succeeded at a lot of the liberal democratic reforms that people elsewhere dream of, and now they need to keep that democracy alive. So unlike before, when domestic repression defined Ukraine, this time the threat to human rights is coming from the outside. That is NPR's Yulian Haida in Kiev and NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you to both of you. Good to be with you. Thank you. Writer-director Todd Field conceived his new movie, Tar, about a symphony conductor with Kate Blanchett in mind. In fact, Field says if she hadn't agreed to play the part, he would not have made the movie. Critic Bob Mondello says the filmmaker's faith in his star is well-placed. Conductor Lydia Tarr is the kind of famous person who needs no introduction. If you're here, then you already know who she is. So of course she's getting one. Lydia Tarr is many things. From Adam Gopnik, the real-life writer for The New Yorker, playing himself, who's about to interview her for an audience that's as eager to see her as she is eager to be seen. The camera is on Lydia, standing backstage, as she has a thousand times in concert halls and many times in lecture halls. And though you'd think this would all be second nature, she looks as if she'd flee if she could until thank you for joining us maestro thank you she's on and charming chatting about music and conducting and how what she does in setting the pace the time for an orchestra is central to its interpretation you cannot start without me see i start the clock 
Now, my left hand. Someone this concerned with control, you sense, is almost telegraphing that she's afraid of losing control. But as inhabited by Kate Blanchett, Lydia is quite ostentatiously in control. Now, the illusion is that, like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time, making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is... Lydia is performing and has the audience wrapped, and afterwards a young woman approaches, as young women apparently often do. Lydia is the first female conductor of a German symphony orchestra, which makes her a role model, and she has a child with the woman who is first violin for that orchestra, which makes her another kind of role model. As her assistant ushers Lydia away from the female admirer and Lydia lingers, writer-director Todd Field gives us our first glimpse of an artist who thinks bound don't apply, and that's reinforced in a different way when she publicly shreds a student conductor who's challenged the orthodoxy of dead white male composers at a class at Juilliard. Her cruelty with a student, and with her assistant, and even with her life partner, is something she does not display at Talks with the New Yorker, but at orchestra rehearsals for an upcoming recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, she is breathtaking. Blanchett, whose way with even the most ordinary line has enough tonal modulation to make her voice seem a musical instrument, learned not just to conduct an orchestra and to play piano, but to speak German for this part. Please, 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 you must watch. Das ist ganz frei hier. As impressive as Blanchett's performance is, it's matched by Field's script, which rewards close listening not just for its wit and precision, but for the way it conveys the dissonance that creeps into Lydia Tarr's life, say in the musical intervals that distract her in a distant scream, a police siren, what sounds like a doorbell. I keep hearing something. After earning eight Oscar nominations with his first two films, In the Bedroom and Little Children, Field took 16 years to devise Tar. And considering the nuanced balance he's striking between Lydia's predatory, manipulative behavior and the aesthetic perfection of her work, it's hard to begrudge him a moment of that time. With Blanchett at the center of virtually every scene, Tar's portrait of an artist who attempts to conduct life and is upended by her conduct in life, feels so fiery and passionate, it blisters. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the area northwest of where the eye of Hurricane Ian came ashore last week is hobbled. We'll take a look at the struggle to move forward. That's just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Farmers to You. You can feed your family organic produce, pasture-raised meats, dairy, and more from Vermont all year round. FarmersToYou.com slash WBUR. And Back Bay Life Science Advisors, executing M&A, licensing, and partnering for biopharma, medtech, and health tech around the world. BBLSA.com. The week on Wall Street ended on a downslide. The Dow dropped 630 points. That's more than 2% to close at 29,297. S&P lost more than two and three quarters percent to finish at 3640. The Nasdaq sank more than three and three quarters percent to end the week at 10,652. The state of Massachusetts is booking new events at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston as efforts to sell it have stalled. 
The Massachusetts Convention Center Authority has started booking dates into 2024. This year, lawmakers failed to act on Governor Charlie Baker's proposal to sell the Back Bay venue and redevelop it. Baker's effort has been derailed by the pandemic and opposition from Hines supporters. The facility still needs renovations. It's 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. Been such a beautiful day, and we've got more nice weather to come for the weekend. 75 degrees now in the Boston area with lots of sunshine. Some clouds should move in overnight tonight. Still might be able to see some of that moon out there dropping to the mid-40s. Tomorrow's sunny, about 58 degrees for a high. Sunday, sunny again. Temperatures moving up to the low 60s. Sunshine's back for the holiday on Monday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Mathnasium, committed to boosting students' confidence, critical thinking, and math grades and scores with in-person or online instruction. Each student follows a customized learning plan. More at mathnasium.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In hurricane-ravaged southwest Florida, the long road to recovery is coming into focus. Residents are returning to barrier islands and flooded communities to assess the damage. And for some, rebuilding is just not an option. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. John Day and his 17-year-old son, Jake, have loaded their Carolina skiff with a case of water and other supplies at a marina just south of Inglewood, Florida. We're heading to Little Gasparilla Island, where there is a tremendous amount of damage. We're hoping to clean up and recover our, our home. I don't know. It's a lot. It's just a lot of work. The two-and-a-half-mile barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico has only ever been accessible by boat. It's just north of where Hurricane Ian made landfall and took a big hit. It's the biggest storm I've ever seen. Very sad. I think this is going to be years of recovery. There's no power, hundreds of trees are down, and every one of the 500 or so houses on the island suffered serious damage. Some structures were completely knocked off their pilings. Right now it's just pure survival mode. Bring groceries, bring gasoline, and have it, if you're lucky enough to have a generator. On shore, Day finds a major mess at his house. The siding has been ripped off one side and a wall has completely detached. There's a piece of my house over there in that neighbor's yard. Inside, there's water damage. Black rings are forming around the light fixtures and the drywall is soaked in one corner where the roof may have lifted. This is the worst. I don't know what kind of mold it is, but it looks like black mold and it's covering the entire bathroom ceiling. Day, an IT consultant and father to three teenage boys, built his house on Little Gasparilla Island in 2004, and it survived Hurricane Charlie. He says he wasn't prepared for Ian's destruction. 
It's been mentally tough, actually, which is I've never been challenged like this. Recovering from Hurricane Ian is proving to be a challenge back on the mainland as well. Huge boat storage warehouses are crunched. Blue tarps cover leaky roofs. And business owners, like Ryan Wall, are taking stock of what they've got left. It's pretty much a total loss right now. Wall owns Rickletini's Restaurant and Bar in Inglewood. I ended up having to get rid of all my food, my freezer, my coolers. All those things are just they're pretty much gone. The outdoor patio is littered with big screen TVs torn from their mounts and mangled metal awnings. It just took that whole structure and ripped it off. Those are my hood vents for the kitchen. Those are all gone. Um, this is my place over here. I live in this little apartment and my parents ended up losing their entire house. So I, I let them move in there and I'm staying with friends because they got three little dogs. And I mean, it's just a total nightmare. Wall is hooking up a generator to help with the cleanup and to try to access his payroll so his employees won't go without a check. It's a daunting task ahead, he says, but he hopes to get back in operation by December. Yeah, so it's just a matter of getting blue tarps up and slowly put it back together. Yeah. For some families displaced by Hurricane Ian, putting it back together feels out of reach. In a neighborhood behind the restaurant, Brianna Iceman is pulling stinky, drenched carpet from her mobile home as her three-year-old daughter plays in the front yard. The storm knocked out windows and ripped off the front porch, undermining the roof. It's not livable. It's still soaking wet, this rug and everything is still soaked. And it smells horrible in here. It's, it's bad, it's gross. For now, the 25-year-old mother of two is living in a temporary rental home owned by a family friend, but she's not sure what the future holds. Her partner is a mechanic and they tend to get by paycheck to paycheck. So I just think that it's harder for us to put our lives back on track because we don't have the stability that a lot of people do. So it's hard, you can't just, you know, pick up and go find somewhere to, to call your residence or your home when you don't have the luxury to do that. Iceman says she's ready to leave her native state after Ian's destruction. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Inglewood, Florida. For Democratic and independent voters, abortion is one of the top motivating issues in the midterm elections. Vice President Harris has been elevating that issue from the White House, hosting dozens of events and traveling around the country. NPR's Deepa Shivaram followed Harris to Connecticut this week for one of those conversations. Hello, last name? Uh, it's a dreary afternoon in New Britain, and student volunteers at Central Connecticut State University are checking in guests. Okay. Down the hall and to the right. Oh. Yeah. Inside, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes is highlighting an issue that's central to her campaign. As women's rights are being eviscerated all over the country, it is critical that we take action to enshrine women's reproductive rights into law. This is normally a safe Democratic district, but Hayes is in a tight race this year one of several that Democrats need to win to try to hold on to the House. She brought in a well-known guest to help make her case. I think that our Vice President of the United States of America is uniquely qualified to weigh in on this conversation. The conversation is about protecting reproductive rights, and Harris has been weighing in, repeatedly. 
This was one of more than 20 events on abortion rights that the vice president has led since May, when the draft opinion reversing Roe versus Wade was first leaked. This is admirable to get out here and, and, and speak with force and feeling about this issue. She's been taking this message to North Carolina, Indiana, and Florida, and back at the White House, she's been bringing together all kinds of stakeholders, lawmakers, faith leaders, health experts, to listen and to energize. She is very much involved in the conversation. Um, she is, um, these are not, this is not a meeting where she's just reading talking points. That's Jocelyn Fry, a Biden administration ally who leads an advocacy group, the National Partnership for Women and Families. She was in one of Harris's meetings last month. You know, we've all been in those meetings when people are sort of just going through the motions, and this was not that type of a meeting. It's not just abortion that Harris addresses in these events. She says that the Supreme Court decision threatens rights for LGBTQ people and people of color, and she sees an opportunity to bring these fights together. Let's organize. Let's, let's link arms and... Um, do what we need to do, including in the next 34 days. That message resonated with Utah State Representative Andrea Ramos. She was at a roundtable with Harris and other Latina state lawmakers back in August. It was really, for, for me, not only a call of action for abortion access and what we could and couldn't do, but really a call of action just to, you know, remind people this is in midterms, but there's a lot at stake. And with just over a month until Election Day, the White House says Harris will continue to hold these kinds of events and will take her message to states with competitive races. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. CitysideSubaru.com. Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. FairbankAndPerry.com. And William James College, open house October 13th for careers in psychology, leadership, and mental health. Scholarships available, williamjames.edu. How do you decide what can be copyrighted? Is this a ripoff? What is ripoff? What is original? What is authentic? I'm Kimberly Adams, a Supreme Court case that might just change the art business. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. U.S. employers slowed their hiring slightly in September but still added 263,000 jobs. The unemployment rate dropped to 3.5%, pointing to a tighter labor market. That will likely keep the Fed on pace to aggressively raise interest rates again to fight inflation. President Biden calls the job gains an encouraging sign as Fed policymakers assess their progress in taming inflation ahead of next month's meeting. For some time, I've been saying that what we need to do in this transition, we have to move from historically strong economic recovery to a more steady, stable recovery. We need to bring inflation down without giving up all the historic economic progress that working class and middle class people have made. 
Most of the job gains were at restaurants and bars last month, while jobs in the leisure and hospitality industry remains below pre-pandemic levels. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is declaring a state of emergency in response to thousands of migrants who've been arriving on buses from southern border states. From member station WNYC, Elizabeth Kim reports the city expects to spend $1 billion addressing the issue. The announcement is the latest sign that New York City is grappling with a growing crisis created from a political tactic by Republican governors opposed to President Biden's border policy. Mayor Adams, who's a Democrat, asked the Biden administration for help in diverting some of the migrants to other cities. We didn't get the support and information we asked for. And now New York City is being forced to bear far more than its share of this national crisis. Another nine buses of asylum seekers arrived in the city on Thursday. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Kim in New York. Stocks finished the week lower across the board on Wall Street. The Dow down more than 2%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Expect a slow ride if you're hitting the highway for the holiday weekend this afternoon. 128 northbound is especially slow with backups that start in Needham and end in Linfield. That's a one-hour, 20-minute ride on that stretch. 495 northbound is a 90-minute ride from Westboro to Haverhill. And the Mass Turnpike westbound is slow from Southboro to Sturbridge. That trip should take about an hour, 20 minutes. The Cape Cod military base that provided temporary housing for the migrants who arrived unexpectedly on Martha's Vineyard about three weeks ago is closing its shelter. This afternoon, the Baker administration announced that all of the roughly 50 Venezuelan migrants who were staying at Joint Base Cape Cod in Bourne have been sent to another housing area or are leaving Massachusetts to live in other states. The migrants who are in Texas say they were tricked into flying to Martha's Vineyard last month at the direction of Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. In November, ballot question four will ask Massachusetts voters to weigh in on whether immigrants without legal status should be able to obtain state driver's licenses. As WBR's Chris Setterick reports, those looking to repeal the law say the issue goes beyond safety on the roads. Former State Senator Dean Tran tells Radio Boston the bigger issue is that giving out licenses could lead to voter fraud. This is not a public safety issue, nor is it a driving issue. It's about skirting the immigration law, allowing people to vote. But State Senator Brandon Crichton calls that a distraction and says there are already safeguards to prevent election fraud. He says the law will make driving safer and give people confidence about who they're sharing the roads with. Every other driver has earned a driver's license, has shown documentation, has passed a road test, and has gotten insurance, is for safer roads, and is supported by law enforcement. A yes vote would keep the law in place. A no vote would repeal it. Sixteen other states have already enacted a similar law. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Chris Siderick. Massachusetts consumer protection officials are seeing an uptick in student loan borrowers inquiring about potential scams. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, this comes as consumers wait for an official application from the Biden administration to qualify for the new student loan cancellation program. Shortly after the administration said certain borrowers could have up to $20,000 in student debt canceled, the U.S. Department of Education partnered with several state and federal agencies to warn consumers about scams. Officials with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office say that while it hasn't received any formal complaints, its student loan assistance hotline is getting calls from borrowers looking to verify whether a call they got was a scam. 
Student loan scams can cost borrowers a lot of money. In the last 18 months alone, the Federal Trade Commission reports reaching nearly $30 million in settlements for borrowers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Gas prices are up for a second straight day in Massachusetts after more than three months of decline. A gallon of gas will now cost you an average $3.53. That's up two cents from yesterday, four cents from Wednesday. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. It's up to 77 degrees now in the Boston area. Sunshine has moved in for the day. Looks like it's also going to spend a long weekend. Tonight we should see overcast skies, gusty winds, lows about 47 degrees. Tomorrow sunshine returns, highs about 58. Sunday sunshine and moving up to about 62. Then for Monday, the holiday sunshine yet again, comfortable with temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax efficient strategies at fidelity.com/wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. For decades in Ireland, unwed mothers and their children were confined to institutions run by the Catholic Church, and those mothers were often coerced to give up their babies. It's a well-known history that's been chronicled in movies like Philomena. I'd like to know if Anthony ever thought of me. I've thought of him every day. Mothers often have no idea what happened to their children. Those children often don't know who their birth parents are. Mary Steed is now U.S. Coordinator for the Adoption Rights Alliance. She was adopted from Ireland and grew up in the United States. I got involved in the advocacy end of this as I began the search for my own mother. Uh, found her in 2002, and we reunited, had a wonderful 12 years together until she passed in 2013. This week, the Irish government launched an online service that will allow adopted children to see any information the state holds about them. And when I spoke with Mary Steed earlier today, she said that could be a far easier process than her own search. (laughs) The way I did it was sort of the old-fashioned way. Of course, this was before records were open. There was just a long history of obfuscation, brick walls, religious orders lying to us, you know, giving us misinformation. Um, So it was a very difficult process 25 years ago on up until relatively recently and certainly uh, for the folks in Ireland this past week. That's the first opportunity that they've had to actually go through an online portal, request their original birth certificate, and get early life records. Um, That's something that they've never been able to do before. I know that this online service is pretty new, but have you heard anything from people who are trying to go through this process now to see any information that the state holds about them and just how easy it is to, to start that process? I mean, obviously, it's early days yet. Nobody has gotten any kind of information back 
yet. You know, I think it is going to take some time. They're inundated with requests. Um, we've already noted at the very beginning from Monday um, there were technical difficulties with people accessing the system, and we have detailed those to the relevant bodies. And So far, they've been very proactive in getting those things fixed. So it seems to be smoother now as we move toward the end of the week and people are at least able to get their applications in. I would guess it's probably going to be another few weeks before they start to hear back, so we'll be anxious to hear whether information is being redacted, which we've been promised it wouldn't be. Uh, we'll see you know, exactly what level of access they're given and whether or not this really is what we had hoped it would be. All of this access, this information about your past, on a personal level, what does it mean to you? I mean, everybody takes it for granted. If you're not adopted, you have a birth cert, you know who your parents were, you know who your grandparents were, you know your family story. That's something that we've never had. And, you know, regardless whether you're an adoptee in the United States, domestic or Ireland or from some other country, it's a basic human right that we take for granted that we've been denied for many years in many U.S. states. There are still states that seal records. Um, We're only asking for a birth certificate and early life records, not not the right to a relationship. We know that's a whole different animal. That's a whole different story. Um, Whether or not the people that you might find on that journey are open to contact or any kind of relationship is not a given, and we don't assume that. Nobody necessarily expects that. Most adopted people are very realistic about that. But just to know who they themselves are, who did I start out life as, it's, it's incredibly important and fills in so many missing holes. This seems to be one step in correcting a historical wrong. But is it enough? What should happen next? It's certainly not enough. You know, the infant mortality rate in so many of these institutions was just incredible. And much like our compatriots in Canada and elsewhere, there are enormous numbers of mass unmarked graves. Those still need to be addressed. Um, There is the issue of redress to the mothers and children who came through these institutions. And finally, and I think most importantly, is going back to that idea of a national repository Um, much like the Stasi archives in in Germany, Um, just a full, thorough accounting of every person that went through any type of institution, home, whatever it may be, uh, make it accessible to all family members who have a relevant interest in it, and on a redacted basis, make it accessible to academics, students, people who want to learn from that history. We've been speaking with Mary Steed, U.S. Coordinator for the Adoption Rights Alliance. Mary, thank you for your time. Thank you. This week, the European Parliament approved new rules that will introduce a single universal charger for a wide range of electronic equipment. That includes iPhones, which currently use a cable specific to Apple devices. Now, the EU has been pushing for a measure like this for a decade. They say this will save consumers money and environmental waste. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Starting next fall, all cell phones manufactured in or for the EU must be chargeable by a single USB-C connector. Computers will have until autumn of 2024 to comply with the new standard. 
The change had been discussed for years and was prompted by complaints from iPhone and Android users about having to switch to different chargers for their devices. Ultimately, we will be producing 11,000 tons of electronic waste less every year. EU parliamentarian Alex Agius Saliba said the effects will be huge. Our consumers will be benefiting because they will be uh, keeping in their pockets more than a quarter of a billion euros every year from unused or extra chargers that we are putting on the market. And therefore, this will be beneficial to consumers, to businesses, and also to our environment. Apple has been most opposed to the measure, saying it would slow innovation and be counterproductive. European Commissioner for Internal Markets Thierry Breton had a response for that. No, it's not at all against innovation. By the way, it's not against anyone. It is just like everything we do. It's for the consumer. The measure passed the European Parliament with 602 votes to just 13 opposed. It had similar backing in this noisy electronics store in Paris. Engineer Geoffroy Vidal says everyone has too many cords and cables to keep up with. I think the USB-C connector is a very good one. Uh, it enables fast charging and uh, to be able to, to have uh, only one charger and one uh, connecting cable is very practical and uh, very good for the environment. So I'm, I'm for this. Uh. Parliamentarian Agia Saliba said another good point of the legislation is its ripple effect. This bold step that we took as a European Union, its effects will also be felt within other regions and other continents. In other words, he says, if manufacturers change their product design for the 450 million well-off consumers in the EU, that's likely to soon become the world standard. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Honk Festival is back in full force in Somerville and Cambridge. The festival is a bold and brassy gathering of musicians with social and political causes. It was limited in size and scope over the past two years because of the pandemic, but this year it'll span the entire weekend. The festival kicked off last night with a performance by Banda Rim Bam Boom from Chile. WBUR's Amelia Mason spoke to the street band about the social upheaval that has rocked Chile in recent years. Eighteen members of Banda Rimbamboom filled the entire stage at the Cambridge Public Library's lecture hall, and they were loud. Being loud was useful when the group took to the streets in 2019 as part of massive demonstrations against subway fare hikes and, more broadly, wealth inequality in Chile. Saxophone player Catalina Chelef says for the first time it seemed like conditions for ordinary Chileans might improve. That year, uh, the reaction of the people, ourselves, uh, showed that uh, that as a community maybe was possible. It was like a, a hope. But the energized left-wing movement was dealt a blow when Chileans voted to reject a new progressive constitution in September. 
Now it's back to the drawing board and a likely compromise on a new constitution. We want to believe, we have to believe uh, that it is possible that we can change the constitution, that we can uh, give uh, rights, fair rights to all people in Chile. The members of Bando Rimbamboom believe they have a part to play in the movement for social change. It's the moment when you are there and you look around and it's so, so full of people uh, thinking like you and hoping for a better world that it touches you. This weekend, Bando Rimbamboom will hit the streets of Somerville and Cambridge with 20 other activist street bands as part of Honkfest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Still to come on All Things Considered, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker weighs in on President Biden's executive action to pardon people convicted of simple marijuana possession under federal law. Also, the demand for cobalt is high thanks to electric vehicle batteries, and today the first cobalt mine in America in decades opened in Idaho. These stories and more coming up on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival. It's back, Saturday, October 29th in Copley Square. Celebrate the power of words. Details at bostonbookfest.org. And Peabody Essex Museum, with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at pem.org slash Halloween. A beautiful start to the long holiday weekend. Should stay pretty nice through Monday at least. Overnight tonight, overcast, some strong and chilly winds, about 47 degrees for a low. Sunshine returns tomorrow with high temperatures around 60. And then sun is back for Sunday, a little bit milder, around 62 degrees. For the holiday Monday, lots of sunshine again, even milder, about 64. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo with the Hunter Douglas Season of Style event featuring the PowerView Smart Motorization System. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at TheMusicEmporium.com. Linda Ronstadt's book, Feels Like Home, is a rumination of her family's southwestern roots, and she laments what's happening at the southern border today and has this advice. Get to know your neighbors. You might be surprised at how much you like them. That conversation and updates on midterm races and all the latest news Saturday, weekend edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. President Biden announced yesterday that he is pardoning thousands of Americans convicted of simple possession of marijuana under federal law. He's also calling on governors to do the same for state marijuana charges. This announcement has energized activists who see it as a step toward decriminalizing the drug and addressing charging practices that disproportionately impact people of color. New Jersey Democratic Senator Cory Booker has been an advocate for changing federal marijuana policy, and he's on the line now. Welcome back, Senator. 
Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. So in the president's announcement yesterday, he said that too many lives have been upended because of this country's failed approach on this issue. The pardons he announced yesterday directly impact roughly 6,500 people with federal convictions and an additional several thousand more in the District of Columbia. So how significant is the impact on people's lives? It is uh, stunning. Uh, as a person who went to Stanford and Yale and grew up in high school in an affluent area, lots of people used marijuana. You saw it very prevalent. We've had former presidents, senators, congresspeople admitted to doing it, but very low risk, low consequence. The people who often are getting these charges for simple possession and getting criminal records are disproportionately low income, disproportionately black and brown. And it's a lifetime sentence. In other words, they may not serve any jail time, but they, for the rest of their lives, will have a hard time getting a job, getting a business license, getting loans, getting certain housing opportunities. The American Bar Association says there are 40,000 collateral consequences mm. for people with a criminal conviction. And it's just so profoundly unjust because of the way we enforce the, the war on drugs or the, in this case, the war on marijuana because even African-Americans are almost four times more likely to be convicted of, of that than whites are, even though their usage rates are about the same. Over the summer, you were one of a number of senators who wrote a letter to the, right, the White House that touched on this issue, calling on the administration to review its cannabis policy and to do more to address, I'm quoting here, the racist and harmful legacy of cannabis policies on black and brown communities. So, Senator, does the action taken this week go far enough in writing that historic legacy of harm? It is a significant step. I'm, I'm so grateful to the president and his team. I talked to them before they made this decision. It, it goes a, a good way. We still have longer to go. We, we need full expungement. Uh, presidential pardons could be uh, gateways for people to get out of this sort of uh, poverty uh, convictions that often carry that force people to live on the margins. But there's more that we can do to sort of create a fair playing field when it comes to our criminal justice system. Again, uh, we have a nation, and I see it where I live. I now live in a low-income black and brown community. We have entire neighborhoods that are destroyed by such kind of unequal enforcement because it doesn't just affect a, a father or a mother, it affects their families and more. And being that that's being visited on certain communities, not others, it's created terrible disparities that we need to do everything we can to level. What the White House has done this week stops short of calling for complete decriminalization, which is, of course, something that would have to happen in Congress. And it's a legislative push that you have been a leader on. Do you see a scenario where that can pass the Senate in the near future? Any bipartisan support? I do. I, you know, it's interesting because, you know, almost about 1920 states now have legalized for adult use, even more for medical marijuana. Many of those are red states that have voted overwhelmingly for it. I think that there's enough space right now and there are already conversations and dialogue going on about some kind of bipartisan movement because we see problems within the banking industry and a lot of people who are winning licenses can't get access to loans and more. So there's a lot of folks who understand that we have to act on the federal level to do more than the president's done. And I'm hopeful that this Congress actually in the lame duck after the midterms, I'm very hopeful we can get something done. And Senator, before I let you go, we've got about 30 seconds left. You've talked a lot and argued for the need for a rational drug law. What in practice does that look like? Well, again, we have to be a country that, number one, doesn't treat this plant like a Schedule One drug. Fentanyl is not as highly scheduled. Right. 
which is killing so many Americans, is marijuana. So I just want to have a, 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 a marijuana laws that don't over-criminalize people, that allows this to be studied, uh, and that okay. opens the door for, I think, uh, justice, which is so sorely needed in this area. Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And now to Idaho, where a cobalt mine that had been defunct for decades is getting a reboot as the U.S. and the rest of the world try to transition away from fossil fuels. Cobalt is a metal needed for electric vehicle batteries and for storing wind and solar energy. But as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, getting a major cobalt industry up and running in the U.S. is still a long shot. Today's opening of the Idaho cobalt mine comes as the Biden administration is trying to fast-track domestic development of strategic minerals needed for an energy transition. But getting away from dirty, combustible engines and moving toward more green power still requires mining. So I'm Bryce Crockett, uh, Chief Executive Officer of Jevois Global. Jevois Global is the Australian-based company opening the cobalt mine in the remote mountains of Idaho, not far from the famous Salmon River. Unlike the past mine, which polluted local trout streams, CEO Bryce Crocker says environmental safeguards are in place, including $40 million in guaranteed cleanup funds if something goes south. This mine is also mostly underground, not the old massive open pit. I think this is a really important development for the U.S., Important geopolitically, he means, most of the cobalt mined in the world currently comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there are widespread child labor and other human rights problems. Idaho is the only cobalt mine in the United States and is going to remain so. So we viewed it as a, as a strategically important asset for the country. And then also, and by default, Jevois, for us to be uh, trusted with stewardship of it to bring it into production. The Idaho mine will at least initially be a blip in the global market, barely projected to meet 10 percent of current demand in the U.S. It'll be a while before we can actually say that this is going to be a growth industry. Brad Martin is director of supply chain security at the Rand Corporation. If the ultimate product is batteries, batteries are all pretty much made in China or Korea. So, you know, there there may be, you know, this is a step and maybe a, a useful step, but it's certainly not the be-all, end-all. The cobalt from this mine will all be shipped to a refinery in Sao Paulo, Brazil, to be processed. That's because current projections show only an initial seven-year run here, making building a U.S. refinery too costly for now. But company officials say they're eyeing new federal funds that might help extend the mine's life cycle. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place. With e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue, at K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash N-P-R. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals, Learn more at fisherinvestments.com.
Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. This is WBUR, blue skies, sunshine through the evening hours. Some clouds should move in overnight tonight, though, dropping to the mid-40s. Then for tomorrow, Sunday, and possibly the holiday on Monday as well, sunshine with high temperatures in the low 60s could reach about 64 degrees on Monday. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's Drum Folk. They took away the drums, but they could not stop the beat. Drum Folk is a high-energy, thrilling, percussive celebration inspired by the Stono Rebellion of 1739 in Boston, October 5th through 16th at the Cutler Majestic Theater. Tickets at artsemerson.org. I'm Radio Boston executive producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Employers in America added 263,000 jobs in September, a modest slowdown from August. The job market is still tight, though, as the unemployment rate dipped to 3.5%. Our story is coming up on this Friday, October 7th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Hurricane Ian has caused enormous property damage in Florida, and officials are scrambling to recover in time for next month's elections. The counties that are involved are out in the field trying to find out which polling places are still standing, which ones can maybe be brought back online by Election Day or by the start of early voting. The Uvalde, Texas School District has suspended its police department, citing the uncovering of additional concerns of department operations. Also ahead, Twitter, maybe under Elon Musk. It's 5.01. News headlines are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A power line providing electricity to one of the reactors at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant was briefly disconnected again today because of shelling. That's according to a statement from the International Atomic Energy Agency. NPR's Kat Lonsdorf has more from an area near the plant that continues to get hammered by rockets and artillery. The UN's nuclear watchdog says reactor number six briefly had to be hooked up to diesel generators before a backup power source was connected. The power plant has been occupied by Russia since March, surrounded by fighting and unpredictability, sparking concerns about a possible nuclear disaster. Residents in Ukrainian-controlled Nikopol, directly across the Dnipro River from the plant, say that they've been experiencing intense shelling every night for months. One woman told NPR the first thing she does every morning is wake up and look across the river to make sure the plant is still intact. Kat Lonsdorf, NPR News, Nikopol, Ukraine. The U.S. Commerce Department is putting in place a broad ban on selling certain types of advanced semiconductor chips and technology to China. 
NPR's Emily Fang reports the new export ban on the kind of chips used in machine learning or graphics processing is aimed at halting China's progress in artificial intelligence. The new U.S. export bans are broadly written to prevent the sale to China of any technology, software, or machinery that can be used to make what are called graphic processing units, a type of semiconductor chip used in artificial intelligence applications. The idea is to preserve U.S. dominance in this area of semiconductors and computing, though China has been investing heavily in becoming self-reliant in semiconductors. The U.S. export ban employs the same legal tool used to cripple Huawei, the Chinese telecom firm that has been cut off from some of the U.S. designed and made electronic components crucial to its phones. Emily Fang, NPR News. Federal officials say as many as 15 million people have now gotten one of the new Omicron COVID-19 boosters. More from NPR's Rob Stein. The White House COVID-19 response coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha, says between 13 and 15 million people have rolled up their sleeves since Labor Day to get one of the new bivalent boosters. About half of them are older people who are at greatest risk from COVID. We need to continue and, and up that pace as we get into October. We think it's a really smart idea for people to get their flu shot and their COVID vaccine at the same time. That's what I did. More than 200 million people are eligible for the boosters, which officials hope will help shore up people's waning immunity and protect people against another possible fall and winter surge. Rob Stein, NPR News. U.S. employers slowed their hiring last month, though the 263,000 jobs added still shows an economy that is cooling only slightly, and not enough to keep the Fed from continuing to hike interest rates. Stocks reacted negatively. The Dow fell 630 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission today officially decided on when it will launch the legalized sports betting program in the state, placing a bet in person is scheduled to begin in January before the Super Bowl in February. The commission wants betting with a cell phone or with a computer to be ready by college basketball's March Madness. Some commissioners acknowledge that a high number of vendor applicants or other unforeseen circumstances could derail those plans. Delays persist at this hour on Massachusetts highways on this getaway day for the holiday weekend, but some of the backups are not quite as long as they were earlier today. 495 northbound is still slow from Marlborough to Haverhill. That's about a one-hour, 20-minute ride. 128 northbound is an hour, 20 minutes from Needham to Linfield. The Massachusetts Pike westbound is slow from Southboro to Auburn. That is a one-hour trip. The MBTA is promising Orange Line riders that the trains will be running faster soon. According to the Boston Globe, data analyzed by the advocacy group Transit Matters show the Orange Line has been slower this week than it was before the month-long shutdown. The MBTA says what it calls secondary work needs to be completed between North Station and Assembly Square before it can eliminate slow zones where trains are required to travel at lower speeds. This afternoon, the MBTA said train speeds will increase along more parts of the line in the coming week. Top state and federal environmental leaders went to the edge of Boston Harbor today to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. The landmark federal law led to the cleanup of Boston Harbor. Environmental Protection Agency Assistant Administrator Radika Fox says environmental justice is the goal of the Clean Water Act over the next half century. Clean water for all, so that regardless of your zip code, the color of your skin, how much uh, money you have in your pocket, that you will have clean water. 
Fox says the effort will get a boost from the infrastructure law Congress passed last year and provides $50 billion for the EPA's water programs. And the Patriots say it is unlikely injured quarterback Mac Jones will be ready to play on Sunday. This afternoon in its injury report, the team listed him as doubtful for the game against the Detroit Lions. He did take part in practice for a third straight day, but has been limited in the workouts because of an ankle injury. If Jones cannot play, rookie quarterback Bailey Zappi will be in line for his first career start. In the forecast, lots of sunshine today. Clouds tonight, lows about 47. Sunshine back tomorrow, highs around 58. Sunshine's back for Sunday too, highs around 62. And then Monday, the holiday, sunny yet again. Temperatures in the mid-60s. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This first full week of recovery after Hurricane Ian has officials in Florida scrambling to address critical infrastructure issues. The storm displaced families and caused tens of billions of dollars in damage, including to places that were supposed to be polling sites for next month's midterm elections. We start our coverage this hour with NPR's Ashley Lopez. Despite all the chaos, election officials in every county in Florida say they were able to hit yesterday's deadline for sending out mail ballots. But the big question now is whether people will actually get those ballots. Tommy Doyle, the election supervisor in Lee County, where the hurricane made landfall, says that's going to be a challenge in some cases. The post office will attempt to deliver. And so there's going to be places that they can't deliver, they can't even get to. Doyle says those voters might have to go to where their mail is being held. He says voters can also just call his office and have it send a new ballot to wherever they're staying. And in-person voting could be a bigger challenge. Mark Early, president of the state's Association of Election Supervisors, says finding polling locations after so much property damage and flooding is tricky. You know, the counties that are involved or impacted are uh, out in the field trying to find out which polling places are still standing, which ones can maybe be brought back online by Election Day or by the start of early voting. In Lee County, Tommy Doyle says Election Day sites are not looking good. He says he planned to have 99 precinct locations on Election Day, but his office has only been able to find about 30 locations that can be up and running so far. And the rest of them are you can't contact, there's no contact with anybody, or they got damaged or they would, they may be able to do it if they get power. Doyle says that's why he's hoping that Governor Ron DeSantis signs an order allowing him to run a dozen early voting centers through to Election Day, which was allowed after a hurricane in 2018. That way, voters could cast ballots at any of those centers instead of their assigned precinct. DeSantis says he's open to suggestions from election officials, but in general, he doesn't want to make too many changes on how elections are normally run. I want to keep it as normal as humanly possible. I think the more you you depart, you know, it just creates problems. And in Florida, even small changes to how elections are run and who has access to the ballot can have a significant effect on elections because margins are usually pretty slim. And there are some big races on the ballot this year, including DeSantis's re-election. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. We're going to stay in Lee County, Florida for a moment. 
specifically Sanibel Island, which remains cut off from mainland Florida unless you travel by boat. The hurricane collapsed the island's only bridge, and as repairs began today, I caught up with longtime resident and travel writer Shelley Walton. When Ian first made landfall, she was not sure if she and her husband would survive as the water rushed into their house. So we'd swam around. I just tried to get things out of the way for my husband, who has Parkinson's disease, so he could not get hurt. With the water up to their chests, they were able to make one call to their son Aaron before their phones died. They escaped and got help from neighbors, but they had no cell service or internet and no way off the island for three days. As my talk with Shelley Walton continued, she said her son kept working to reach his parents and to send help. I think finally my son Aaron's efforts paid off because instead of just the normal little cart that they bring around with the fire department, we got like five policemen and a pickup truck picked us up and went and helped my husband out of the house and into the car and helped us onto the ferry and ran into a friend of mine on the ferry who happened to have um, you a know, phone that worked and cell service. And he let me call my son. And so that was the first time. I was able to talk to my son, and um, he was very relieved, to say the least, but he was, like, stunned. So he came and picked us up at the ferry landing, and we hugged a bunch. Let's just say that it was it was one of the happiest days and one of the saddest days because I was, I was so sad that I put him through so much. Mm. Shelley, after you escaped, you told our colleague Quill Lawrence that you and your husband were able to go and stay with your son, Aaron. Have you been able to return to your home? Oh, no, heavens no. There's, they're still working on the causeway there. They're thinking maybe they'll have a temporary road going there by the end of the month. My son told me this morning that the post office on Sanibel when the post office people or federal people, whoever went out there to try to assess repairs, could not get in, did not want to get in because there's an alligator in the post office. Oh my gosh. You know, you have lived in Sanibel Island for about 40 years, so you must be no stranger to living through a hurricane season, but this time sounded like it was different. Every hurricane is different. And the last one we um, experienced, the last bad one, was Irma. We ended up leaving the island, and the storm ended up shifting, and the eye sat over top of us there. So needless to say, we're like, uh, well, we would have been safer on Sanibel. (laughs) Every experience you've had kind of colors your decisions. As my husband looked at me and said when we were in the attic, uh, we picked the wrong hurricane to ride out. I'm like, yeah, we did. (laughs) But... We've never been through surge like that. So like I say, every storm is different. Can you describe for our listeners what Sanibel Island normally looks like compared to what it looks like right now? Oh, there's just no comparison. Sanibel is the most beautiful island in Florida. I've written like a dozen books about Florida. I've traveled the entire state. Sanibel is the the crown jewel it's the most beautiful spot in the state it's just the beaches it's the fact that like two-thirds of the island is protected against development natural wildlife refuge there's a lot of people invested into making sanibel come back as you and others in your community are beginning the long process of recovery 
What is the main thing that you think people at the state and federal level who are engaged with this need to know about Sanibel and what it needs right now? I think they're pretty well in tune. We had you know, President Biden down here this week, along with our governor. They just need to remember that there are people there, and I think they do. I'm not saying they don't. That it's not just the tourism dollars they're losing, the bed tax and the business taxes. It's, it's the heart. It's the people who make up the island and love it. Well, we can certainly tell that you do. Shelley Walton is a travel writer and a resident of Florida's Sanibel Island. Thank you again for sharing your story with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for asking. The U.S. job market downshifted a bit last month. Employers are still adding jobs, but not at the same pace that they were earlier this year. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The slowdown in hiring could help curb inflation. But that wasn't enough to reassure investors. Stocks fell sharply today, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunging more than 600 points. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so this snapshot that the Labor Department offered this morning on unemployment and employment, can you just tell us a little bit more about what exactly it shows? It shows the economy is still adding jobs. Employers added 263,000 jobs last month. That brings the total this year to nearly 3.8 million jobs, but the overall pace of hiring has slowed down a bit. Uh, You can see that, for example, in the manufacturing sector. Nicole Wolter runs a factory in Wakanda, Illinois, that makes packaging equipment for food companies. She's still busy, she says, but her phone is not ringing as much as it was with customers seeking price quotes. Uh, Wolter says she's not looking to add any additional workers right now. In the beginning of the year, we were just so swamped. And I would say in like about the past three to four weeks, I've seen a slowdown on that activity. Um, I've been hearing that everyone's just kind of waiting it out to kind of see what happens after the election, trying to figure out if there really is this impeding recession that's going to start looming. Walter also told me she had such a tough time finding workers over the last couple of years, she's put more money into automation, and that is allowing her to produce more with the workforce she already has. Okay, so then what kinds of businesses are still adding workers now? Well, a lot of businesses that rely on in-person customers are still playing catch-up after taking a big hit early in the pandemic. Bars and restaurants, for example, added Mm -hmm. another 60,000 jobs last month. September was also a big month for healthcare hiring. In fact, it's the first month that employment in healthcare is finally back to where it was before the coronavirus struck. Mm, Okay, that's good news. How do these changes in the job market affect inflation, though? You know, it's a mixed picture. Uh, For some time now, the Federal Reserve has been worried that the job market is out of balance. Uh, There aren't enough workers to go around. Employers are having to compete for help. And as a result, wages have been rising at a rapid rate. Now, that sounds like a good thing, but it can also put upward pressure on prices. So the inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve were actually happy to see some slowdown in employers' demand for workers and a corresponding slowdown in wage gains. Mm -hmm. Average wages in September were up 5% from a year ago. That's a smaller increase than the month before. So that's moving in the right direction as far as the Fed's concerned. What's not so good, though, is there were fewer available workers in September. Some 57,000 people dropped out of the job market last month, and that's not the direction the Fed wants to go. Now, that drop was small compared to the big influx of workers we saw in August, so you don't want to make too much out of it. 
But it is part of the reason the unemployment rate fell last month to just 3.5%, which matches the lowest level in half a century. Well, as we said at the top, Scott, markets are way down today. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, the Dow fell more than 2%. The rate-sensitive Nasdaq tumbled nearly 4%. Investors see that low unemployment rate. They see wages still climbing, and they think to themselves, inflation's not going away anytime soon. And that means the Fed is even more likely to keep raising interest rates. Uh, higher interest rates means lower stock prices. That is NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you so much, Scott. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, why a sitcom about a group of teenage friends in Northern Ireland has been such a hit. Dairy Girls is in its final season. That story is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Southern New Hampshire University, offering over 100 master's degrees online and on campus. Next term starts soon, snhu.edu. The week on Wall Street ended on a downslide. The Dow dropped 630 points today. That's more than 2%. It closed to 29,297. S&P lost more than two and three quarters percent to finish at 3640. The Nasdaq sank more than three and three quarters percent to end the week at 10,600. 652. Cambridge-based Cyclarion Therapeutics is laying off nearly half its staff. The pharmaceutical company says it's narrowing its focus to a single drug that's being tested for effectiveness against brain diseases. The move is designed to save the company more than $4 million a year. Cyclarion stock is down a little over 40 percent since yesterday's announcement. It's 519. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Lots of congestion on the roads this afternoon, and there are delays on the commuter rail on two different lines. Trains on the Kingston line are running up to an hour late because of fire department activity in Hanson. And trains on the Middleborough line are experiencing severe delays in Middleborough because of a signal issue. In the forecast, some clouds moving in tonight, temperatures in around 47 degrees. Then for tomorrow and Sunday and the holiday Monday as well, sunny with highs on either side of 62 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are lots of TV shows and movies about sectarian violence set in Iraq, Syria, or Rwanda. They're often serious and tragic. Almost none are as ridiculously funny as Dairy Girls. Netflix just dropped the third and final season of the hit comedy about a group of teenage friends in Northern Ireland. This season finds them nearing graduation and having to decide whether to vote for the Good Friday Agreement, which effectively brought an end to the troubles. As Jenny's awful play just alluded to, a referendum is about to take place. The 
outcome of which could change the course of history. To those of you who have already turned 18, I strongly urge you to exercise your right to vote. It's your future. Take it seriously. On the other hand, and I cannot stress this enough, I have absolutely no interest whatsoever in any of your other so-called rights. Dairy Girls is a coming-of-age story loosely based on the childhood of writer and creator Lisa McGee. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. So excited to talk to you about this show, which I've loved for the last three seasons. Um, in this season, you really explicitly tie the idea of coming of age as a teenager to the experience of Northern Ireland, sort of entering its own adulthood in a way. When did you notice that parallel? I think I always wanted to the final scene of the show to be the Good Friday Agreement vote. So I always had that in the back of my head just because it was such a significant thing, such a significant moment for me and my peers growing up. But as I was writing the show, I really began to realize that these kids, that the, the five lead characters were kind of growing up at the same time as Northern Ireland was starting to grow up. So I really leaned under that as an idea then, and it kind of all just clicked into place, you know. Was that something that you felt as a teenager in real time, or was it only in hindsight that you saw that parallel? Definitely in hindsight. I don't think we really understood the enormity of that at the time we didn't think about much beyond ourselves really as as most teenagers tend to do you know so yeah it was it was definitely after the fact that I, I realized how momentous it was and I just wanted to end the show on that beat really was there any voice in the back of your head you had to overcome that said now now mustn't make light of something as serious as the troubles there were certain things I was very careful about because it is a big serious part of our history that is still kind of everywhere you know the ghosts of it are still haunting Northern Ireland you know so so I was very careful and worried about some things but mostly I felt like I, I could walk that line because I'd loved it you know yeah. I knew we were going to have to make jokes about it you know I just there was no sort of avoiding that because it's it, it's a sitcom. It's now a massive hit, but were you afraid of how it would land in Derry? How your friends and family would, would receive it? Terrified. That was, I think that's why I was so careful with some of the jokes. Because I just knew people in Derry aren't, the, the saying goes, they're not backwards and coming forwards. You know, they, they don't, they'll tell you what they think. Mm. So I, I just couldn't have gone home again. <laughs> And now you're a huge celebrity at home. Now there's a 30-foot-tall mural of your characters in Derry. Yeah, that's insane. It's slap bang in the center of the town as well. And every time I go back, I completely forget about it until I'm walking through the center of town. And then it's like, oh, there they are. <laughs> that's right, that happened. Is there one scene that everybody talks to you about? Is there one line that everybody quotes? A lot of people talk about the boring uncle, Colin. Half it, half it. For I was halfway through my dinner, and up I got to open it. A lot of people seem to, a lot of Irish people anyway, seem to have that person in their family, and they want to talk about him, usually. I don't mind a bit of a breeze. I was thinking that's a real risk, writing a character who is intentionally boring, because the last thing you want to do is bore your audience. And it's great comedy, but there's a fine line you have to walk, right? 
Exactly. There's a real sort of rhythm to it. For when the bride arrived, and as I say, by this stage, the wind was fierce. Why did? I've never it can't really be boring. The story he's telling has to be entertaining. Am I in hell? What's funny is that it's boring the other characters, but I just think Kevin McAleer, who plays that character, has just got such a gorgeous comedic rhythm to the way he speaks. And she's lifted up in the air like a pepper doll and blown into a flower bed. It's an incredible thing he can do. It's actually quite funny. So, yeah, we're very lucky with him. He served an important role in the plot in the first episode of the third season where the girls get arrested and they're being <laughs> interrogated by Liam Neeson, of all people, and they figure out the solution to getting sprung is to call their boring uncle who will yeah. bore Liam Neeson to tears. So I says to myself, says I, call him. Who'd be ringing you at this hour? I always want to call him to save the day. At some point, I really love him as a character, and I just thought that's his superpower. Or wasn't we asked him? I can't remember, sir. Jesus. I'm like a dead one. Mr. McCool, if I could just... He bores Liam, Liam Neeson into submission. We can go. Yes, please. Do go right now. And for the love of suffering Jesus. Why do you think a show that is so specific in its language, its setting, its cultural references has become such an international hit. What's the universal vein that it tapped into? Yeah, I think people were, were maybe ready to see a group of, of young women being ridiculous and being flawed and n- not being the sidekick, being, you know, the, the lead in a, in a comedy. I also just think it's very sort of colourful and nostalgic and silly. <laughs> and, and and people, it's it's been a... It's been a stressful few years for everyone. So I think people just like that. You know, they, they know they're going to have a, a nice time. Maybe. Well, it's also something about having a nice time during a stressful period. Like these are not people who exist in Pleasantville. They exist yeah. in a difficult time and enjoy their lives nonetheless. I totally agree. And I've had people say that to me, you know, that it's sort of reminded them that things have been tough before, you know, for, for, mm. for people and they still got through it and they still laughed and fell in love and embarrassed themselves. And, you know, it, it, there's there's something to, to be said for that maybe as well. Is it tough to say goodbye to these characters? It's really sad. I have a very weird relationship with them. I've, they felt like my friends <laughs> towards the end. <laughs> well, they were. I mean, they were actors playing people based on your friends. Yeah. So And, and even, like... The set was built using photographs of my family home oh, wow. as inspiration. So it was a really lovely experience. And I do miss them. I still think of lines for, say, Orla and go to write one down and then think, oh, I don't write for Orla anymore. The show's over. But mm. yeah, I just thought it was the right time. And I'm excited about creating new characters now and a new world now, you know. Lisa McGee is the creator, writer, and executive producer of Dairy Girls. The third and final season is now on Netflix. Thank you so much. Thank you.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Should turn cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures falling to the mid-40s. Sunny tomorrow, highs about 60 degrees. Sunny on Sunday, making it to 62. Monday, sunshine's back up in the mid-60s. We get to gaze at a full hunter's moon Sunday night, weather permitting. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gloucester Stage with The Thin Place, a haunting new play by Lucas Nath, part seance, part ghost story, through October 23rd. Tickets at GloucesterStage.com. Last term, the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, limited the authority of the EPA, and expanded gun rights. Critics said the conservative majority was working to a political agenda. In its new term, the court faces decisions on voting rights, affirmative action, gay rights. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, a report card on week one of the court's new term. That's on point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In hurricane-ravaged southwest Florida, the long road to recovery is coming into focus. As NPR's Debbie Elliott tells us, more than 100,000 customers remain without electricity nine days after Hurricane Ian hit. Residents are trying to salvage what they can from damaged homes, and business owners like Ryan Wall are taking stock of what they've got left. It's pretty much a total loss right now. Wall owns Rickletini's Restaurant and Bar in Inglewood. The outdoor patio is littered with big screen TVs torn from their mounts and mangled metal awnings. It just took that whole structure and ripped it off. Those are my hood vents for the kitchen. Those are all gone. Wall is hooking up a generator to help with the cleanup. It's a daunting task ahead, he says, but he hopes to get back in business by December. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Inglewood, Florida. The Biden administration is unveiling a new national strategy for the Arctic. As NPR's Jackie Northam reports, the new strategy addresses concerns about Russia and China in the polar region. Senior administration officials say the new national strategy envisions maintaining a peaceful, stable Arctic by deepening commitment and coordination with allies. The last government-wide policy for the Arctic was in 2013. Many of the issues remain the same, What's striking is the urgency in this new strategy. Climate change has dramatically altered the polar region over the past decade. Geopolitics, the war in Ukraine, has affected international relations in the Arctic. Economic competition with Russia and China. How and whether to mine for critical minerals hidden in the frozen north. The paper also talks about the need for new icebreakers. The U.S. currently has two aging vessels, one of which should have been mothballed years ago. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are problems on the MBTA's commuter rail this evening. There are several delays on the Kingston line because of fire department activity in Hanson. Also, there are delays of over an hour on the Middleborough line because of a signal problem. Meanwhile, delays remain on area highways on this busy travel day of the holiday weekend. On 95 northbound, there are often on backups from Needham to Linfield. That's about an hour-long trip. On 495 north, traffic is slow from Harvard to Methuen. That's about an hour trip as well. And on the Mass Turnpike westbound, there are backups that begin in Southborough and end in Auburn. 
budget one hour for that stretch, too. A woman who federal authorities allege called in a bomb threat to Boston Children's Hospital this past summer has been indicted by a grand jury. The U.S. attorney from Massachusetts announced today that Catherine Levy of Westfield is charged with making a false bomb threat in August. She'll appear in federal court at a later date to face the charge. Investigators began monitoring threats against children for its program on gender-diverse and transgender adolescents. Federal agents say they trace the threatening call to Levy's phone. The former commander of the state police barracks in Weston will serve two years on probation and pay $20,000 of restitution after pleading guilty to charges that he filed fraudulent claims for more than 200 hours of overtime he did not work. David Keefe was sentenced yesterday after he entered his plea. Keefe was a supervisor in Troop E that was responsible for overseeing the Mass Turnpike. Dozens of troopers were implicated in the overtime scheme. Boston's 28th Fashion Week starts this weekend. This year's event features local designers who use technology to create clothing that can respond to the person wearing it. Jay Cauldron, the co-founder of Boston Fashion Week, says he wants to reflect Boston's unique approach when it comes to fashion. But it was all about embracing what we used to apologize for which was, you know, it's a smart city, it's intellectual, it has all these colleges, uh, there's a fo- focus on science and technology and innovation, and that all of those things are good things for creative people who want to design things. The event will also include augmented reality galleries that can be accessed anywhere from a smartphone. It's 535. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at ArtsEmerson.org. It was just too nice today, and there's more lovely fall weather ahead for the weekend. Sunshine today gives way to mainly cloudy skies overnight tonight temperatures in the mid 40s tomorrow sunny breezy dry about 58 tops sunday could make it to about 62 still windy and still sunny monday beautiful for the holiday sunny again warming to about 46 degrees 77 degrees now in boston at 536 support for npr comes from this station and from fidelity wealth management working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. Today, the school district in Uvalde, Texas, suspended its police force. It follows the botched response to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School in May. Nineteen students and two teachers were killed. And parents had been calling for this department to be dissolved. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies was outside the Uvalde School District building when that announcement was made earlier today. Hi, David. Hello, Juana. So, David, if you can remind us, what led us to this moment? Well, 10 days ago, some of the parents of children uh, who were lost at the Robb Elementary School shooting began a protest in front of the school district headquarters, and they were demanding that the members of this 
District Force be suspended and investigated for their actions the day of the shooting. Now, they've been camping at this front entrance for 24-7. And I was interviewing Nikki Cross, the mother of slain 10-year-old Uzziah Garcia, when they got word about this district's decision. That means our demands have been met here, of course, about suspending so all police. Yeah, there is no police force. There's right not going to be no police force there at the school. Well, we have plenty of DPS, oh, yeah, yeah. plenty of city cops, plenty of sheriffs, which is what we've been saying. Two members of the district police force have been put on administrative leave and one is retiring. That's according to the district. And the uh, another officer and the chief, Pete Adondo, they have already been fired. David, what can you tell us about how this decision came about? Well, the district is not saying why it did this. They're just saying recent developments have uncovered additional concerns with departmental operations. But the parents say without their protest, this wouldn't have happened. And they say that their protest was galvanized by the recent hiring of District Officer Crimson Elizondo. Uh, before she was hired, she was at the uh, Texas State Trooper. She was a DPS officer. And she was at Robb Elementary at the shooting. And she was recorded saying that if her child was inside, she would not be outside. And so she was fired from her job as a trooper. And then she got hired at Uvalde CISD Police. And the parents were outraged. Elizondo, uh, here's Nikki Cross again. It was a huge slap in the face to even find out that she was hired and we were already hurt by just her being hired and then to find out what she said and what her lack of inaction that day hurt even more. That rage definitely echoes what I heard from parents when I visited Ubaldi back in late August. What was the reaction there like today? Well, word spread quickly among the parents of the children who died. Uh, about a dozen people just suddenly showed up at the protest site outside the school board headquarters. And, you know, it was muted celebration, uh, giving high fives, but some were in tears. And the protesters, you know, they broke up camp right there, right there. And they picked up all their gear and they drove off because their goal had been achieved. In the couple seconds we have left, what can you tell us about what happens next? Well, for now, the district has asked the Texas Department of Public Safety to provide additional troopers on campus security. The Uvalde School District Superintendent Hal Harrell is now saying that he could be retiring. In an email to okay. staff, he said that the school board will discuss okay. the superintendent retirement on Monday. That is Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies. Thank you. A far-right activist with roots in an extremist movement is a rising figure in Israeli politics. His name is Itamar Ben-Gavir, and he has a chance of becoming an Israeli cabinet minister after next month's elections. As he hits the campaign trail, journalists and educators are debating just what kind of platform to give him. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Many Israelis were shocked by this recent video. Itamar Ben-Gvir, a former youth activist with an outlawed anti-Arab extremist group, taking selfies with an excited gaggle of Israeli Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. They're an emblem of Israel's mainstream. <laughs> Ben-Gvir has also been a frequent guest on primetime TV. On the show Meet the Press, Ben-Gvir wears a big grin and a big yarmulke off-kilter on his head. His look is disheveled and disarming. The TV anchor calls him a huggable poodle. 
Then he asks, is this the real Ben Gvir? Fifteen years ago, he was convicted for supporting terror by calling for Arabs to be expelled. Today, he says he doesn't want to expel all Palestinians, just those actively against Israel. His chief political strategist, Navo Cohen, tells NPR he's demonstrating pragmatism. Our strategy is to shed a light on the Itamar Brengvir's other side, which the Israeli public is not uh, familiar with. Former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has encouraged Ben-Gvir's rise in politics. In the U.S. Congress, House Democrat Brad Sherman called on Israeli politicians to ostracize Ben-Gvir. But in polls, more than a quarter of Israelis support Ben-Gvir, even becoming a cabinet minister. He didn't have much name recognition a few years ago, and now he's a household name. Israeli TV commentator and author Nadav Eyal has sparked a debate in the Israeli media. Is Ben-Gvir getting too much airtime? He is invited to the studio, and the hosts will again and again play the game of confronting him. But this confrontation is, is nothing about real journalism. It's about the show. His colleague on the same TV channel, Barshem Or, did interview Ben-Gvir. He prepared by reading academic articles about covering far-right figures, and he considered the argument that French and Brazilian media helped mainstream Marine Le Pen and Jair Bolsonaro. We have examples from history that when politicians from the far right were uh, refused interviews, they used it. They said, look how the mainstream media doesn't give us our uh, free speech. In his documentary, he visited Ben Gvir's home and confirmed that Ben Gvir had taken down a portrait of an Israeli gunman who killed 29 Muslim worshippers in the 90s. But there was still a portrait of Rabbi Meir Kahana, the founder of the outlawed anti-Arab movement. We didn't give in to the notion that uh, Itamar Ben Gvir is turning mild. We portray him as he is. It's not just a controversy in the media. Ben Gvir was invited to speak at a prominent high school, sparking protests. School principal Hila Romash tells NPR she got hundreds of angry text messages, some calling her fascist, but she defends her invitation. If I am giving students an exercise in democratic elections, I need to be fair and bring the whole range of political opinions in Israeli society, even if the opinions are extreme. How will they respond and how will they learn if they don't hear these opinions? One student asked Ben Gvir why he should be a role model after he hung a picture of an Israeli mass murderer in his home. Another pressed him on gay rights. Ben Gvir said he wouldn't fight the LGBTQ community. In the end, the school held a mock election, noted across the country where Ben Gvir's parliamentary list got less than 5% of the vote. In the real elections next month, that would be enough to get him into parliament and perhaps a prominent role in the next government. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Elon Musk may finally own Twitter by the end of the month. The mercurial billionaire changed his mind yet again this week and says he does want to buy the company after all. And if this deal does go through, Musk would dramatically reshape how the social media site works. Here to talk more about all of this is NPR's Shannon Bond. Hey, Shannon. Hey there. Okay, so catch us up here. The deal is back on, like, for real? Well, sort of. So just to recap... (laughs) Musk agreed to buy Twitter back in April, but he quickly changed his mind and has spent months trying to get out of the deal. But facing an imminent trial, he surprised everyone this week when he said he would go through with it. So now the judge in the case is giving Musk until October 28th to complete this purchase or they will go to trial. Okay, the clock is ticking. Assuming he does not have another change of heart, like what do we know about what Musk will do once he does own Twitter? Well, he said from the beginning that this was about free speech. And just a reminder, Elsa, over the years, Twitter has created a lot of rules to promote what it calls healthy conversations. So it has rules against harassment, hate speech, extremism, false or misleading claims about elections and COVID. Mm -hmm. But Musk says these are too restrictive. He says Twitter should allow basically all legal speech. And that would be a big change. I spoke with Angelo Carusone, president of the liberal watchdog group Media Matters for America, and he says for an idea of what this might look like, you can just look to social media sites that have much laxer rules, like Parler and Truth Social, the site backed by former President Trump. You can look at these alternative platforms where the feature is the bug, where being able to say and do you know, the kinds of things that we prohibited from more mainstream social media platforms is actually why everyone gravitates to them. And what we see there is that they are cauldrons of misinformation and abuse. Yeah. Well, you know, Shannon, you mentioned Donald Trump, which, you know, we all remember he was banned from Twitter after January 6th. What has Musk said about that? Well, he said that banning of Trump was a, quote, morally bad and foolish decision and says he'd bring him back. And Musk has been really critical of the idea that anyone should be permanently banned from Twitter, except spam bots and, he says, people who explicitly advocate violence. And so that could mean not just letting Trump back, but other banned users, too. Conspiracy theorists, anti-vaccine activists, election deniers. And it could have ripple effects. You know, Facebook is considering whether to reinstate Trump when its ban expires in January. And, you know, in some minds, if Twitter lets Trump back on, it Mm -hmm. could make it easier for Facebook to do the same, even as we see Trump further embracing this stolen election lie and other conspiracy theories. Well, ultimately, what do you think all this will mean for Twitter as a business? Well, you know, Twitter has struggled for a long time to make money. You know, it relies on advertising. But it's hard to see advertisers wanting to be on a site that has a lot of hate speech and harassment and toxicity, toxicity, or users, frankly, too. So Musk, you know, has talked about moving away from advertising. His latest idea is to turn Twitter into what he calls an everything app. So an app that you could use for messaging, but also for payments, maybe even to do ride hailing, anything you could do online, right? It could be your sort of digital hub. But Elsa, I think it's important to remember, Musk loves to talk about these grand visions, right? Making electric cars cool, going to Mars. So we're going to have to see if he actually follows through on this grand vision he's laying out for Twitter. We'll see. We'll see. That is NPR's Shannon Bond. Thank you, Shannon. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Lincoln Center area in New York City used to be a diverse neighborhood, but it was raised. Now, nearly 60 years later, the center is addressing that painful history. That story is just ahead. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. And Cambridge Science Festival. What happens when fashion designers and scientists work together? Find out tomorrow when Boston Fashion Week teams up with Cambridge Science Festival to bring you the future of fashion. See runway shows, wearable tech, 3D-printed outfits, and so much more. Visit CambridgeScienceFestival.org. The New England Patriots say it is not likely that injured quarterback Mac Jones will be ready to play on Sunday. This afternoon, in its injury report, the team listed him as doubtful for the Sunday game against the Detroit Lions. He did take part in practice for a third straight day, but has been limited in the workouts because of an ankle injury. If Jones cannot play, rookie quarterback Bailey Zappi would be in line for his first career start. In the forecast, cloudy tonight, sunny tomorrow, Sunday, and Monday as well, with high temperatures over the weekend around 60 degrees, 77 now at 549. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. When I think of nuclear weapons, I think of a mushroom cloud. Is that what we're talking about? We're not. What we're talking about now is extremely different. It's a whole different dark universe that grew up in parallel to this ginormous, scary world of mushroom clouds. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. Think back to the opening of last year's film version of West Side Story. The very first thing we see is acres of rubble and a sign. This property, purchased by the New York Housing Authority for slum clearance, that's an allusion to a real neighborhood that was destroyed to make way for Lincoln Center, home to the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Philharmonic, among others. In the 1950s, that neighborhood, called San Juan Hill, was mostly a community of Black and Puerto Rican residents. Their story, and even the name of their neighborhood, was mostly scrubbed from history. As NPR cultural correspondent Anastasia Siolkas reports, the New York Philharmonic is now premiering a new piece of music, which aims to acknowledge that past. Long before Lincoln Center existed, San Juan Hill was a nexus for African-American and Caribbean culture. It nurtured many jazz greats who lived and played there. Duke Ellington and cornet player Rex Stewart even co-wrote a tune named in tribute to this community, San Juan Hill. But in the 1950s, the powerful urban planner Robert Moses led the effort to have San Juan Hill raised. He displaced more than 7,000 families as well as some 800 businesses. In a 1977 interview with New York's public television station, WNET, Moses defended destroying San Juan Hill. Now I ask you, what was that neighborhood? 
was a Puerto Rican slum. You remember it? No, I don't remember. Yeah, well, I lived on one of those streets there for a number of years, and I know exactly what it was like. It was the worst slum in New York. You want to leave it there? Why? On a kind of neighborhood business? Christ, you never could have been there. That was the worst slum in New York, and we cleared it out. Professor Yarimar Bonilla is the director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. She says Robert Moses intentionally used highly charged language about San Juan Hill. Robert Moses in particular, he used a lot of kind of medical language talking about the slums of these cancers that had to be eradicated and cleaned up and almost as if it was a disease that could spread. Sixty years after Lincoln Center's opening and a $550 million renovation later, the New York Philharmonic's home at Lincoln Center, now called David Geffen Hall, is reopening this weekend. And Lincoln Center is taking this opportunity to readdress the narrative of its history. It invited Etienne Charles, a composer, trumpet player, percussionist, and Guggenheim fellow, to think deeply about that complicated past and create a piece of music that would acknowledge that hidden history. So Etienne Charles created a new work for the Philharmonic and his band, Creole Soul. Etienne Charles is originally from Trinidad. He had never heard of San Juan Hill until he moved to New York to study for a master's degree at Juilliard, which is part of the Lincoln Center campus. But he eventually realized that the raised neighborhood had significant Caribbean connections and to jazz. The Jamaican pianist, Monty Alexander, told Charles that composer and pianist Thelonious Monk had grown up in San Juan Hill. Monty Alexander came to my house and we were working on some music for his concert. He started playing Monk's music. And he's like, you realize Monk's music has a Caribbean bounce, right? And I said, and I never thought about it. He started playing Green Tunes. He's like, boom, 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 Etienne Charles's meditation on San Juan Hill will be the very first piece of music to be heard in the newly renovated David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center. It's also the first time that Lincoln Center has ever commissioned music for the New York Philharmonic. Charles worked with a number of creative multidiscipline collaborators to make San Juan Hill come alive. Shanta Thake is the chief artistic officer at Lincoln Center. She says commissioning Charles to write such a piece was a crucial moment of reckoning for the institution. What an example, what a moment that would be to open David Geffen Hall with this commission, with this story, and really confront our past head on as we move into the future and not kind of blank slate everything, but really make things more complicated for ourselves. And I think in a way, actually allow us to make space for what's next. In his musical portrait of San Juan Hill, Etienne Charles wanted to move through many dimensions, chronological, stylistic, and demographic, from Geechee Gullah shipyard workers to recently arrived European communities. This piece is about showing the magic of the culture that was created when these people came together here. Gala dance here, Paseo rhythm there, Antillian waltz here, Sicilian folk chant there, 
Irish drunk song. Like, you know, all of these different pieces together mixed up the blues from the South, created a vibe that fed not just American culture, but influenced everything that would happen and come out of New York for the next 50 years. Charles's piece references lots of music made and heard in the neighborhood, including the Charleston dance. Although it's named after the South Carolina city, it was actually born right in San Juan Hill, thanks to composer and pianist James P. Johnson. And then from the Charleston, we get to the serious part, which is urban removal with the 10 years from 1949 to 1959 when it went from the Housing Act to groundbreaking of Lincoln Center. And then the last part is a piece called House Rent Party. Whereas, you know, we all come together. Tickets for this world premiere are priced as pay what you want, starting at $5 per ticket. Another way of making Lincoln Center a truly welcoming space for all New Yorkers. San Juan Hill has its world premiere this Saturday. Anastasia Tsilkas, NPR News, New York. Following the recent chess cheating scandal, we explore the idea that everyone is capable of cheating. It makes sense that unethical people are cheaters, and that's a simple and appealing and perhaps comforting worldview. The idea that all of us at least have the potential to stretch the truth or convince ourselves of a different reality that's friendly to our own perspective and priorities, that maybe is a little bit more daunting. NPR's afternoon podcast, Consider This, Why We Cheat and Why We Find It So Offensive. To listen, just download or subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Peace Prize laureates represent civil society in their home countries. This year's Nobel Peace Prize goes to three winners, human rights activists and organizations from Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Today is Friday, October 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered.
I'm Lisa Mullins, also ahead. Residents of part of Florida near where the eye of Hurricane Ian came ashore last week are still struggling to figure out how to move forward. The film Tar is a meditation on a celebrated conductor who abuses her stardom and is a star vehicle for actress Kate Blanchett. Also celebrating the sounds of social movements. We take you to the Honk Festival in Somerville and Cambridge and hear how an activist street band is using music to push for reforms in its home country. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. It was another one of those days on U.S. financial markets when the difference between Main Street and Wall Street was clearly evident. Stocks fell after the Labor Department today announced the nation's unemployment rate fell last month by two-tenths of a percent, and the economy continued to add jobs at a fairly solid if slower pace. Commenting today, President Biden acknowledged there were some cross-currents. In the short term, the transition to a more stable growth that continues to deliver for workers and families while bringing inflation down. In the long term, the economy built on a firmer foundation. We still have a lot of work to do, but we're building a different economy than before. Today's disconnect centered around the fact Wall Street had hoped for weaker jobs numbers that might prompt the Fed to take a breather in its aggressive string of interest rate hikes aimed at reining in inflation. For now, that does not appear to be in the cards. The first week of testimony has come to a close in the seditious conspiracy trial against Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four others. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports one of the witnesses jurors heard testimony from today was an FBI agent. FBI Special Agent Byron Cody testified about public messages Stuart Rhodes sent, as well as public statements he made in November and December of 2020. In one message read out in court by Cody, Rhodes warns of a, quote, bloody and desperate fight against what he calls an illegitimate Biden regime and his deep state allies. The messages also point to Rhodes' growing focus on January 6th as a key date. Special Agent Cody was the sixth witness of around 40 who are expected to testify for the prosecution. Rhodes and his co-defendants are accused of plotting to use force to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president. The trial is expected to last around five weeks. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The founder of a Michigan-based election software company was arrested earlier this week as part of an investigation into poll worker data breaches. As member station WDET's Eli Newman reports, the company worked with Detroit for several years. City officials said Detroit would end its relationship with Conic Corporation after prosecutors in California announced the arrest of its CEO. Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon says the company was storing the personal information of election workers on servers in China. This information is not related to election material or voter information. According to city records, Detroit had worked with Connick on various election systems since 2008. The city is often a target for former President Donald Trump, who claims the 2020 election results there were faked. There's no evidence to suggest that happened, but the Republican candidate running to be Michigan's top election official has repeated those conspiracy theories. For NPR News, I'm Eli Newman in Detroit. Stocks closed lower on the final trading day of the week. The Dow dropped 630 points today. The Nasdaq was down 420 points. The S&P 500 fell 104 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are severe delays tonight on two MBTA commuter rail lines. The Kingston line has delays of over an hour because of a fire department activity in Hanson. A disabled train is blocking the crossing as a result, so Route 27 
is closed to vehicle traffic near the Hanson Rail Station. Delays are also more than an hour on the T's Middleborough line because of signal problem in Middleborough. Meanwhile, it remains a slow ride on some highways on this busy travel day leading into the holiday weekend. 95 northbound is slow from Needham to Linfield. That's a one-hour trip. 495 north is backed up from Boxborough to Methuen. That takes you about 55 minutes. And the Mass Turnpike westbound is slow from Westboro to Auburn. That should take you about 40 minutes. Massachusetts Gaming Commission has voted this afternoon to officially target a late January launch for in-person sports betting. That means bettors in the state would be able to gamble on the Super Bowl. The commission's also identified early March as a target start date for mobile and app-based wagering. Commissioner Eileen O'Brien says it's still difficult to hone in on specific launch dates, especially for mobile betting, because no one knows how many vendors will apply to take part in the program. Until we know exactly how many we get, there's, there's a huge range. One commissioner abstained from the otherwise unanimous vote. Nikisha Skinner says she's concerned the timelines are too aggressive and won't allow regulators uh, to do thorough work. The military base on Cape Cod that's provided temporary housing for the migrants who arrived unexpectedly on Martha's Vineyard more than three weeks ago is closing its shelter. This afternoon, the Baker administration announced that all of the roughly 50 Venezuelan migrants who are staying at Joint Base Cape Cod and Bourne have been sent to other housing or are leaving Massachusetts to live in other states. The migrants who are in Texas say they were tricked into flying to Martha's Vineyard last month at the direction of Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. Massachusetts consumer protection officials are seeing an uptick in student loan borrowers inquiring about potential scams. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, this comes as consumers wait for an official application from the Biden administration to qualify for the new student loan cancellation program. Shortly after the administration said certain borrowers could have up to $20,000 in student debt canceled, the U.S. Department of Education partnered with several state and federal agencies to warn consumers about scams. Officials with the Massachusetts Attorney General's office say that while it hasn't received any formal complaints, its student loan assistance hotline is getting calls from borrowers looking to verify whether a call they got was a scam. Student loan scams can cost borrowers a lot of money. In the last 18 months alone, the Federal Trade Commission reports reaching nearly $30 million in settlements for borrowers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Data from first responders indicate Boston avoided a bike and pedestrian safety crisis during the month-long Orange Line shutdown this summer. Before the closure, some advocates warned that heavy traffic and bulky shuttle buses could make intersections especially dangerous. Here's WBR's Rob Lane. Boston Emergency Medical Services says the number of pedestrian incidents it responded to actually stayed flat during the shutdown compared to the same time frame last year, and bicycle incidents even declined a bit. Stacey Thompson of advocacy group Livable Streets Alliance credits the city's work to divert traffic and increase signage. What I think is most remarkable is that the city didn't just do this as a reaction to the orange line. They also intentionally took the time to learn from this experience and then made some of those changes permanent. Thompson also credits state transportation officials, especially for prioritizing cyclists on state roads. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. And the forecast should have overcast skies tonight. Gusty winds, lows about 47. Tomorrow, sunny, up around 58 degrees. Sunday, sunny, moving to about 62. Then for Monday, the holiday sunshine yet again. Should be a beautiful, comfortable day. Temperatures in the mid-60s. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. This year's Nobel Peace Prize was announced today with three winners, all human rights activists and organizations. They're from Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia. Here is Barrett Rice Anderson, chairperson of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, announcing the award. The three nations they represent are neighbors, and their civil societies have a joint understanding of the values that they want to promote. Well, joining us now to talk about the winners are NPR's Yulian Haida in Kyiv and NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Hey to both of you. Hi there. Hi there. So, Charles, I want to start with you because Russia again, right? Like last year, the co-winner of this award was the editor of an independent Russian newspaper. This year, the Russian human rights group Memorial is the winner or one of the winners. Can you talk about this group? Yeah, sure. You know, Memorial emerged uh, in the late Soviet era as part of a public effort, really, to document Stalinist era crimes. This is when millions of Soviet citizens were sent to the prisons, uh, to the gulag. Uh, yet it was the organization's work documenting human rights abuses in the new Russia that really put Memorial increasingly at odds with Vladimir Putin's Kremlin. In, in 2021, just last year, the organization was liquidated for allegedly violating the government's foreign agents law. Hmm. Uh, a parallel case found its human rights wing guilty of promoting terrorism. Uh, Memorial insists both trials were politically motivated and has continued its work uh, despite a crackdown at home that's intensified amid the conflict in Ukraine. And that's why this award matters, says Memorial member Svetlana Ganushkina, who was cited by the Nobel Committee today as an early supporter of Memorial's work. So here Ganushkina calls the award a show of solidarity and an acknowledgement that not all Russians are bad and that there are those, in fact, Russians who are against the war in Ukraine. Hmm. And Yulian, you're in Kyiv, where another winner, the Center for Civil Liberties, is from. What do we know about that group? Well, the group was founded in 2007, and that was a time when Ukraine's government was rife with abuse and corruption. Just a couple of years prior to that, Ukraine had a really big protest movement, and some people wanted to move their activism from the streets into offices to kind of formalize it. Mm. The Center for Civil Liberties was a tangible way that lawyers and human rights activists could work year-round. And that came really in handy when Ukraine got its next big protest movement just a few years later. Their work has taken a really big turn, though, since Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Instead of holding their own government accountable, they're now turning their attention to Russia. I talked to Yuri Belous, a human rights attorney in Kyiv, who's helped the center document Russian war crimes. He says here that documenting war crimes is a vital preventative measure to further war. It's also a well-deserved, albeit safe, peace prize choice. And what's been the larger reaction in Kyiv to this award? Surprisingly controversial. It's the first time that a Ukrainian person or group has ever won a peace prize. Yeah. And there's a great deal of pride in that fact. Yeah. But there's also a lot of criticism from the president's office on down to social media that say that the Nobel Committee's joint peace prize unfairly lumps together Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia and adopts a lot of the same discourse about neighbors and common struggles that Vladimir Putin also has used to justify ah, this war. Yes. 
Yeah. Mikhail Podolyak, a top advisor to Ukraine's president, said that Russian or Belarusian activists don't deserve a peace prize because they weren't able to mount an effective anti-war movement in their own countries. Of course, that's because domestic repression at home doesn't really allow for that. And in fact, a lot of Belarusian activists have sought refuge in Ukraine. Well, speaking of Belarus, Charles, can you talk about the Nobel Peace Prize winner from there? Because he's the sole individual recipient this year, right? Yeah, that's right. This is Ares Polyatsky. He emerged a key figure in the pro-democracy movement in Belarus starting in the 1980s. Uh, he eventually founded Vyasnya. This is uh, the word means spring in Belarusian. It's an organization that documents human rights abuses and monitors elections. Now, there have been many of the former and too few of the latter in Belarus under strongman Alexander Lukashenko's rule. He's been in power since 1994. Uh, and yet in interviews, Bolyatsky never seems to lose hope, as you can hear. So here Bolyatsky says in an interview with Deutsche Welle's Russian service uh, that he's convinced democracy and human rights will ultimately prevail in Belarus, arguing otherwise he wouldn't have fought for it all those years. Now, Bolyatsky has been in and out of prison for his activities. In fact, he's currently in jail uh, on what are widely believed to be trumped up charges of tax evasion. So when I reached out to Belatsky's colleagues at Vesna, they weren't even sure if he knew he'd actually won the Nobel Prize yet. Either way, his colleague Vesna's Natalia Sansukevich says it's well-deserved and overdue. As I remember five times a nominee, and finally he is a winner. And uh, my first thought was, like, finally. So, Charles, you know, as we noted earlier, the award to the Russian organization is, like, the second year in a row that we have seen a Nobel Peace Prize given to a perceived Kremlin critic. And it just so happens that this is President Vladimir Putin's 70th birthday today, right? How much of a coincidence do you think that is? Well, certainly the early reaction from, let's call it official Moscow, has been subdued. You know, lawmakers here say are saying that the Nobel Committee has discredited itself by injecting politics into the decision. Uh, but the Nobel Committee's chair was asked directly, was this a message for Putin on his birthday, no less? And she argued the prize fundamentally wasn't about him. We always give a prize for something and to somebody and not against anyone. Okay, well, finally, a question for both of you. What does it say that the Nobel Peace Prize went in a way to this whole region instead of to just one person or one organization? What do you think? Well, you know, to, to me, it tells us that the committee sees what's happening in these countries as critical to the future of Europe, if not the world. And the recipients come from countries that are all in their own way uh, grappling with the legacy of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, reflected most painfully uh, in the conflict in Ukraine, but also in these increasingly autocratic and authoritarian governments in Russia and Belarus. Uh, but make no mistake, you know, this is the second year in a row where oppression of speech and thought uh, and, and truth in Vladimir Putin's Russia is in the Nobel spotlight. And of course, Belarus has similar problems under Alexander Lukashenko. Yeah, but in some ways, Ukraine sees itself as having graduated from some of those repressions and fear that consume societies in Russia and Belarus. Since the 2014 revolution, Ukrainian civil society has really succeeded at a lot of the liberal democratic reforms that people elsewhere dream of. And now they need to keep that democracy alive. So unlike before, when domestic repression defined Ukraine, this time the threat to human rights is coming from the outside. That is NPR's Yulian Haida in Kiev and NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Thank you to both of you. Good to be with you. Thank you. 
writer-director Todd Field conceived his new movie, Tar, about a symphony conductor with Kate Blanchett in mind. In fact, Field says if she hadn't agreed to play the part, he would not have made the movie. Critic Bob Mondello says the filmmaker's faith in his star is well-placed. Conductor Lydia Tarr is the kind of famous person who needs no introduction. If you're here, then you already know who she is. So of course she's getting one. Lydia Tarr is many things. From Adam Gopnik, the real-life writer for The New Yorker, playing himself, who's about to interview her for an audience that's as eager to see her as she is eager to be seen. The camera is on Lydia standing backstage, as she has a thousand times in concert halls and many times in lecture halls. And though you'd think this would all be second nature, she looks as if she'd flee if she could until thank you for joining us maestro thank you she's on and charming chatting about music and conducting and how what she does in setting the pace the time for an orchestra is central to its interpretation you cannot start without me see i start the clock now my left hand someone this concerned with control you sense is almost telegraphing that she's afraid of losing control but as inhabited by kate blanchett lydia is quite ostentatiously in control now the illusion is that like you i'm responding to the orchestra in real right. time making right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing or reset it or throw time out the window altogether the reality is... Lydia is performing and has the audience rapt, and afterwards a young woman approaches, as young women apparently often do. Lydia is the first female conductor of a German symphony orchestra, which makes her a role model, and she has a child with the woman who is first violin for that orchestra, which makes her another kind of role model. As her assistant ushers Lydia away from the female admirer and Lydia lingers, writer-director Todd Field gives us our first glimpse of an artist who thinks boundaries don't apply, and that's reinforced in a different way when she publicly shreds a student conductor who's challenged the orthodoxy of dead white male composers at a class at Juilliard. Her cruelty with the student, and with her assistant, and even with her life partner, is something she does not display at talks with The New Yorker, but at orchestra rehearsals for an upcoming recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, she is breathtaking. Blanchett, whose way with even the most ordinary line has enough tonal modulation to make her voice seem a musical instrument, learned not just to conduct an orchestra and to play piano, but to speak German for this part. Please, 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 you must watch. Das ist ganz frei hier. As impressive as Blanchett's performance is, it's matched by Field's script, which rewards close listening not just for its wit and precision, but for the way it conveys the dissonance that creeps into Lydia Tarr's life, say in the musical intervals that distract her in a distant scream, a police siren, what sounds like a doorbell. I keep hearing something. After earning eight Oscar nominations with his first two films, In the Bedroom and Little Children, Field took 16 years to devise Tar. And considering the nuanced balance he's striking between Lydia's predatory, manipulative behavior and the aesthetic perfection of her work, it's hard to begrudge him a moment of that time. With Blanchett at the center of virtually every scene, Tar's portrait of an artist who attempts to conduct life and is upended by her conduct in life, feels so fiery and passionate, it blisters. I'm Bob Mandela.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on All Things Considered, the Honk Festival this weekend, the sound of social movements on parade. On Wall Street, the week ended on a downslide. The Dow dropped 630 points. That's more than 2 percent to close at 29,297. S&P lost more than 2 and 3 quarters percent to finish at 3640. The Nasdaq sank more than 3 and 3 quarters percent to end the week at 10,652. Cambridge-based Cyclarion Therapeutics is laying off nearly half its staff. The pharmaceutical company says it's narrowing its focus to a single drug that's being tested for effectiveness against brain diseases. The move is designed to save the company more than $4 million a year. Cyclarion stock is down around 40 percent since yesterday's announcement. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession. With Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, October 6th to 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Peer-led courses, speakers, and more. Apply now for 2023. The Harvard Institute for Learning and Retirement. Some clouds moving in tonight, dropping to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine chilly, about 58. Sunday, sunshine again in the low 60s. And Monday, mainly sunny, highs about 64. It is just about sunset, and the bright star you might see soon ascending in the east sky is actually our largest planet, Jupiter. Saturn is high in the sky tonight with a golden sheen, and Mars shows up ruddy and bright sometime around 10 tonight. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Book Festival, where the Massachusetts Children's Book Award winner Peter Brown will talk about his book, The Wild Robot, on October 29th in Copley Square. It's free thanks to sponsors like the John W. Henry Family Foundation, bostonbookfest.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Elsa Chang. In hurricane-ravaged southwest Florida, the long road to recovery is coming into focus. Residents are returning to barrier islands and flooded communities to assess the damage. And for some, rebuilding is just not an option. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. John Day and his 17-year-old son, Jake, have loaded their Carolina skiff with a case of water and other supplies at a marina just south of Inglewood, Florida. We're heading to Little Gasparilla Island, where there is a tremendous amount of damage. We're hoping to clean up and recover our, our home. I don't know. It's a lot. It's just a lot of work. The two-and-a-half-mile barrier island in the Gulf of Mexico has only ever been accessible by boat. It's just north of where Hurricane Ian made landfall and took a big hit. It's the biggest storm I've ever seen. Very sad. I think this is going to be years of recovery. There's no power, hundreds of trees are down, and every one of the 500 or so houses on the island suffered serious damage. Some structures were completely knocked off their pilings. Right now it's just pure survival mode. Bring groceries, bring gasoline, and have it, if you're lucky enough to have a generator. On shore, Day finds a major mess at his house. The siding has been ripped off one side and a wall has completely detached. There's a piece of my house over there in that neighbor's yard. Inside, there's water damage. Black rings are forming around the light fixtures and the drywall is soaked in one corner where the roof may have lifted. This is the worst. 
I don't know what kind of mold it is, but it looks like black mold, and it's covering the entire bathroom ceiling. Day, an IT consultant and father to three teenage boys, built his house on Little Gasparilla Island in 2004, and it survived Hurricane Charlie. He says he wasn't prepared for Ian's destruction. It's been mentally tough, actually, which is, I've never been challenged like this. Recovering from Hurricane Ian is proving to be a challenge back on the mainland as well. Huge boat storage warehouses are crunched, blue tarps cover leaky roofs, and business owners like Ryan Wall are taking stock of what they've got left. It's pretty much a total loss right now. Wall owns Rickletini's Restaurant and Bar in Inglewood. I ended up having to get rid of all my food, my freezer, my coolers, all those things are just they're pretty much gone. The outdoor patio is littered with big screen TVs torn from their mounts and mangled metal awnings. It just took that whole structure and ripped it off. Those are my hood vents for the kitchen. Those are all gone. Um, this is my place over here. I live in this little apartment and my parents ended up losing their entire house. So I, I let them move in there and I'm staying with friends because they got three little dogs. And I mean, this is a total nightmare. Wall is hooking up a generator to help with the cleanup and to try to access his payroll so his employees won't go without a check. It's a daunting task ahead, he says, but he hopes to get back in operation by December. Yeah, so it's just a matter of getting blue tarps up and slowly put it back together. For some families displaced by Hurricane Ian, putting it back together feels out of reach. In a neighborhood behind the restaurant, Brianna Iceman is pulling stinky, drenched carpet from her mobile home as her three-year-old daughter plays in the front yard. The storm knocked out windows and ripped off the front porch, undermining the roof. It's not livable. It's still soaking wet, this rug and everything is still soaking. It smells horrible in here. It's, it's bad, it's gross. For now, the 25-year-old mother of two is living in a temporary rental home owned by a family friend, but she's not sure what the future holds. Her partner is a mechanic and they tend to get by paycheck to paycheck. I just think that it's harder for us to put our lives back on track because we don't have the stability that a lot of people do so it's hard you can't just you know pick up and go find somewhere to to call your residence or your home when you don't have the luxury to do that iceman says she's ready to leave her native state after ian's destruction debbie elliott npr news inglewood florida this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Honk Festival is back in full force in Somerville and Cambridge. The festival is a bold and brassy gathering of musicians with social and political causes. It was limited in size and scope over the past two years because of the pandemic, but this year it'll span the entire weekend. The festival kicked off last night with a performance by Banda Rim Bam Boom from Chile. WBUR's Amelia Mason spoke to the street band about the social upheaval that has rocked Chile in recent years.
18 members of Banda Rimbamboom filled the entire stage at the Cambridge Public Library's lecture hall, and they were loud. Being loud was useful when the group took to the streets in 2019 as part of massive demonstrations against subway fare hikes and, more broadly, wealth inequality in Chile. Saxophone player Catalina Chelef says for the first time, it seemed like conditions for ordinary Chileans might improve. That year, uh, the reaction of the people, ourselves, uh, showed that uh, that as a community maybe was possible. It was like a, a hope. But the energized left-wing movement was dealt a blow when Chileans voted to reject a new progressive constitution in September. Now it's back to the drawing board and a likely compromise on a new constitution. We want to believe, we have to believe uh, that it is possible that we can change the constitution, that we can uh, give uh, rights, fair rights to all people in Chile. The members of Banda Rimbamboom believe they have a part to play in the movement for social change. It's the moment when you are there and you look around and it's so, so full of people uh, thinking like you and hoping for a better world that it touches you. This weekend, Banda Rimbamboom will hit the streets of Somerville and Cambridge with 20 other activist street bands as part of Honkfest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Beacon Hill Books and Cafe, with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th-century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. And Peabody Essex Museum, with power and perspective, early photography in China, rare 19th-century photographs alongside paintings, prints, and decorative arts reveal the entwined history of art, politics, and power. On view now. Tickets at PEM.org.